the, it's, uh, uh, I'm a bit embarrassed because I've benefited so much by going close to last in this, in this uh, meeting because I've heard so many wonderful things and so many great ideas, which I will shamelessly parrot while trying to uh, ascribe them to the people who mentioned them. Um, uh, I think this has been a fantastic meeting. And uh, uh, when John um, first came and uh, we talked about the uh, doing something like the Macy conferences, I actually didn't really know what the Macy conferences were, so I went back <laughs> and started to look at that. And it was really kind of remarkable how prescient the ideas seemed to be. And I didn't really, couldn't really understand that because, um, you know, uh, why was it that, you know, all of a sudden we're now extremely worried and interested in AI and, you know, in devices that mimic neural networks and people were worried about back then and yet for decades it didn't seem like people were that worried about this. And I think that you, Rod, made the point that, well, you know, what happened was the digital revolution took off, Moore's Law went, just went ahead full steam, and anything that wasn't a von Neumann architecture just wasn't worth doing because you would soon have a von Neumann machine that would be able to do anything that you could do, so people just actually rather stopped worrying about this for a while. Um, now, however, uh, we're in a quite a different era, and I, I do have some things I'd like to say about artificial intelligence and even about quantum machine learning because John forced me to write about something that I work on scientifically right now. Um, but I'd like to give a little perspective about Moore's Law. This is from someone who actually, you know, works trying to build computers where you store bits of information on individual atoms and, you know, on superconducting quantum computers, et cetera, and also with people who are trying to extend Moore's Law further and further. So we're not at the end of Moore's Law right now. Um, but Moore's Law has been, various aspects of it ended long ago. Most noticeably, the, um, the processor speed, uh, which had been doubling every few years, crapped out at about 3 gigahertz around, you know, 15 years ago, around 2003 or something like that, just simply so that, you know, the devices wouldn't melt, which led to the development of multi-core systems, which are you know, primitive parallelism compared with Danny's connection machine, but nonetheless a form of parallelism. And now as people are trying to press down to make the field effect transistors smaller and smaller, actually quantum mechanical tunneling effects are coming into play and a leakage current is growing when you start to make these transistors smaller than five nanometers or so. And um, at that scale, you get uh, also statistical fluctuations in the number of electrons on the transistor come into play. And the amount of noise that's going in the system is gross. The wiring problem gets worse. And what's happening now is it's, it's really clear that you can't just have more of the same. The Moore's Law just making, you know, von Neumann-like Intel processors uh, is not going to keep going for that much longer. But what's happening is not that Moore's Law is ending, but that actually it's fragmenting into a variety of different kinds of systems. So we now, it now is a time when it makes, starts making sense to make devices such as, you know, well, people are already using uh, GPUs to do lots of these neural network systems. Um, uh, field programmable gate arrays are extremely useful for fast control systems. Um, neuromorphic computation is being explored where you make systems that are more analog, if you like. I, I, 
I think I have to say a little bit about analog versus digital here, even though I, it's a very false dichotomy. As when John said he's going to make us all vote for analog or digital, and Danny said, but that's so digital of you. You're like, you're <laughs> Yeah, um, the systems, you know, at bottom, nature is quantum mechanical, as Freeman pointed out, and quantum mechanics is both analog and digital. And once you operate at this very small scale, the digital nature of the universe is extremely important. So the kind of information processing that Caroline was talking about, you know, information processing that's going on in the gut, you know, <laughs> this is this suggests a new new set of apps to enlist your gut to compute for you, or like to list your gut to give you the gut feeling of whether oh, this is a spiral galaxy or an elliptical galaxy. <laughs> or the stuff that, <clears throat> well, it's worth it's uh, it's important to note, and and Neil. Uh, pointed this out, that by far the largest amount of information processing going on in the human body is not in the brain. It's digital chemical information processing that's going on at the level of DNA and RNA, which is the ultimate digital form for information, because quantum mechanics makes nature digital. It gives you only a certain number of types of elementary particles, which combine to make only a certain number of types of atoms, which combine to make a large number but countable number of molecules. They can be in different places. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but actually, but you know, somewhere billions of years ago, living systems figured out how to harness this very microscopic digital nature of nature into making encoding information, genetic information into DNA and RNA, and into you know the receptor dynamics and the receptors in 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 cells. You know, which is all cells have receptor dynamics, and um, into the metabolisms of cells. So. As Neil pointed out, I think that you gave the number that you know most of. If you look at the what's going on in the uh, in the uh, genetic reproduction in the cell, okay, it takes about a second for like to bring in something, but they're hey, they're ten to the eighteenth of them, and ten to the eighteenth operations per second. Whereas the uh, if you look at the the brain, it's got you know ten to the eleventh neurons roughly, and ten to the fifteen synapses, and it's going at hundred hertz. That's only ten to the seventeen operations per second. So. But and these are very large numbers. And th this is a uh, and it's this has been going on for billions of years, <laughs> right? You know, neurons haven't been around for billions of years, but by God, cells have been, and been processing information very effectively, um, uh, uh, in a way that combines analog and digital methods. And this, I thought, the another I think a wonderful insights for what happened came from Frank's talk. And I, I really actually agree with uh, that, you know, there is no singularity that's going to be taking place anytime soon. Um, I mean, Ray Kurzweil was my neighbor in Wellesley, and he's a great guy. It is a pity that there aren't more West Coast kind of people here, because when I go out there, I find that that large number of you know Silicon Valley billionaires seem to believe that the singularity is there, and that they themselves will be uploading their consciousness into a computer sometime in the near future. Though actually, if you just do the numbers, like how much is going on in the brain, how much computing power there is, and how much computing power there's likely to be soon. I think perhaps the only, Sergey uh, Ser Sergey Brin is gonna be the only cloud consciousness we have. <laughs> I know, yeah, you know, it's fine to, you know, you say, okay, we wanna upload one person, but when you start uploading the masses, you know, and then it's actually, it's not, doesn't, 
the numbers just don't work out. <laughs> Moreover, I mean, this is, this is, John was talking about the kind of, you know, uh, 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 what happens if you don't read some well-known books. So, um, you know, I, I suspect that if you uploaded yourself to the cloud, even if it were entirely successful and you found yourself as yourself on the cloud, that you, but, you know, unable to go out for a cappuccino, <laughs> you might feel that you'd struck enough, struck a Faustian bargain <laughs> by definition. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of stories about people who desire to live forever and the technologies they use. And I don't ever remember anyone that, that worked out well, unless uh, maybe you, uh, you count the New Testament. But, uh, Wait, I had a conversation with a young man at Google at one point who was very keen on the singularity, and I said... You know, one of the ways that we achieve immortality is by having close relationships with other people, by getting married, by having children. And he said, that was too much trouble. Like, even having a girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> that he'd yeah. much rather try and upload himself into the cloud than actually have a girlfriend around kids. That yeah. was too This, this reminds me of my course at MIT. I actually write the problems on the board, and they're not posted online. So if you want to get the problems for the problem sets, you ha either have to go to class or you have to make a friend. And uh, I say, you know, for you MIT students, you'll have to decide which is harder to do. <laughs> uh, let me just say, class attendance is very good, so. No, my, my, um, uh, my mother just died. It was very sad, and I'm still trying to understand that. But of course, the, that's the kind of immortality that's worth going for. And actually, not really the immortality of writing wonderful books or doing great science, even though that's also a good kind of immortality to strive for, because as you say, the important kind is the parts of yourself that you leave with the ones whom you love and who are important to you that, that propagate maybe in good ways. Which is, I actually, this is what I loved about what uh, Frank was saying, because I agree with this. I think that if you actually just look at these numbers for building new devices, and actually we are going to be building beautiful, wonderful, you know, huge new devices uh, that, that have vast amounts of information processing power, and I think in, in the not-so-distant future will, in fact, kind of match this roughly, you know, 10 to the 17th ops per second on something like 10 to the 15th bits. You know, that's something that is likely to happen in the next half century or so. Though it's going, not going to be by an von Neumann architecture, it's going to have to be by a variety of different methods. And you know, that then, for the reasons that were discussed by, by David in his talks about consciousness and that were emphasized in this, the, uh, by Rod and, and, um, and uh, Danny and others, that you know, people already treat the artificial intelligences of their life as you know, very, very important companions that they would never be without. You know, it's like, you know, who is more important, <laughs> my cat or my phone? Um, <laughs> uh, they, just by, by becoming accustomed to treating these artificial intelligences, even if they're as, you know, dumbass as this little squeaky artificial mouse, you know, and you respond to it as if it were alive, even if, even if it doesn't meet any kind of criteria for having, you know, being able to perceive a gestalt, which, which is, as I mentioned before, this is one of the main issues that was brought up back in the Macy conferences, the early ones about, you know, can an artificial intelligence have gestalt? Like, wow. Well, so... Uh, even if we have something that doesn't, we, we know for sure it's not conscious, it doesn't have gestalt, it's like actually a very simple circuit, but we still feel for it and don't want to cause it pain. That kind of, the socialization of intelligence, which we haven't talked about very much, we talked a lot about intelligence as being 
individual human things. Yet, the thing that really distinguishes humans from other animals um, is our possession of human language, which allows us to communicate, think, both to think and to communicate in ways that other animals don't appear to be able to, which gives us a cooperative power as a kind of global organism, which is, you know, causing lots of trouble. You know, if I were another species, I'd be pretty damn pissed off right now. Um, but it, it's extremely effective, and what makes human beings effective is not their individual intelligences, though there are many very intelligent people in this room, but their uh, intelligence that come from communicating with each other, their communal intelligence. And I, I, I'm, I actually believe that, that, in fact, that my prediction would be that not going to be a singularity, but we're going to have devices that are more and more intelligent. We'll gradually incorporate them in our, in our lives. We already are. And we and they will learn about ways to help each other. Right? Which, which uh, 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 and I suspect that this actually is going to be pretty good. Um, I think it's going to be, you know, the, it's already the case when new tech, information processing technologies are developed, then old, you can start using your mind for different things. So, for instance, when writing was developed, the original, original digital technology, well, then that put Homeric, that put Homer and other, other uh, people who'd memorized gigantic long poems out of a job. Uh, actually, when, when texts, when text, when printing was developed and texts were widely put out, then people complained that there are skills that they had for memorizing, you know, large amounts of things and poetry, which I think is actually still a wonderful thing to do, that, you know, they didn't have to do it any longer. Um, the existence of, there's plenty of evidence that the way that people use the people's memories, the way they use their memory, given that they have access, immediate access to internet search, changes a lot. And I know for myself, I'll just say that I no longer remember what it was, I just remember what I did to get it. Right? <laughs> Where did I go? You know, what were the search terms I used to find this? And then I can, then I can find it again. And let's, let's not even... Let's not even mention the fact that nobody knows where the heck they're going in their head any longer because they just have somebody say, turn left at the next intersection. Right? <clears throat> so, I mean, this is going to be very interesting. And I actually think that if we think of artificial intelligence as part of the human communal development, then this is going to be very empowering for us and for these artificial intelligences. Which uh, uh, brings me to the the, you know, the bad news part of it, because I think I don't have much more time, the, the malign part, oh, I have to remember to talk about quantum computing. But, um, <clears throat> the, you know, uh, there's a lot of bad things out there. Um, the, you know, the fact that you know, the, vast, the, the vast largest amounts of, of artificial intelligence out there are, are being used by large corporations to sell us crap we don't need. Like, you know, so I, and I, I sometimes question their intelligence. You know, I, I've had both my hips replaced, and I frequently get these ads saying, Dear Seth, you have this artificial hip. Perhaps you'd like to try this other one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, here, here's a Swiss Army knife for you to, like, to do it yourself. I mean, I mean what are they thinking? Well, I don't, don't get it. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, and not moreover, the, 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 the questions, you know, what, what they could do with that information, uh, should they chose, you know, if Google were more like the government of China, or if Google re-enters China and the government of China asks it to do things for the government of China, then, you know, essentially any, any hope of, then, then we are in something that's much worse than 1984 and at, some, at some level. Um, 
So I think that's, that is stuff to worry about. But the notion, this notion that's popular, was popular with Stephen Hawking, uh, 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 discussed it. Elon Musk is apparently afraid of this. That that a malign, we'll create a malign artificial intelligence that will take over society. Just seems to me kind of silly. I mean, first of all, we're far away from having such an artificial intelligence. A modicum of you know, we'll have a long time before I would say centuries before that they, such a thing might exist, and we have plenty of time to make sure that if such a thing exists, that it's okay. Um, and actually, I think that that one of the uh, Again, uh, reading is helpful for this. You know, uh, we know that if you create um, uh, a being, an artificial being who is both more intelligent and stronger and ethical than you, well, as Mary Shelley pointed out to us, you better not treat it as if it's subhuman, because if you do, then it will behave in a psychotic fashion. <clears throat> um, so I think that if you know, if we, if we just simply choose to be kind to the artificial intelligences we create will be going a long way in the right direction. And we should also be careful. We should be very careful about the companies that are spying on us and are using artificial intelligence so far, primarily just to sell us useless crap over the internet. Um, uh, let me close because I was supposed to say something about quantum machine learning, um, because that's what I said I'd say something about. Um, <clears throat> amongst these technologies that are going to be, or that are likely to be useful, these novel technologies of information processing are quantum computers, which as Danny pointed out this morning at breakfast, and I completely agree, have not yet actually done anything that a classical computer couldn't do. However, uh, are now at a stage where Despite the fact that they're still piddling and tiny, they now have you know 50 quantum bits and 100 to 1,000 quantum bit quantum computers are likely to show up soon. Um, these are going to be just one of these information processing tools, and they're now at the stage where they can actually process information for specialized problems like simulating other physical systems. An application proposed by Richard Feynman um, that they can do better than classical supercomputers. That's going to keep on going. And interestingly, about, about uh, well, I, hate, I should, ne should never say interestingly, because that means it's not. But about, about six years ago, six or seven years ago, my postdocs and I began looking at applying quantum information processing to do machine learning. And the simple intuition is that quantum systems can generate statistics that cannot be generated by any classical computer equipped with a random number generator. You know, they can generate strange and counterintuitive phenomena. This has been known for you know, more than a century. And um, we also know from the example of things like deep neural networks or Boltzmann machines or uh, deep learning that, that if you build a device that can generate certain kinds of statistics, it can often, often be used to recognize similar kinds of patterns. So if quantum systems can generate patterns that cannot be generated classically, perhaps they can also recognize and categorize patterns that can't be uh, categorized or recognized by a classical system. Moreover, it, it might not be that these might go beyond what, just you, what you just have in a, you know, what weird, weirdness like the EPR effect and stuff like that. Might also be that they can find patterns in nature that, that for things that you could never do on a classical computer. And for example, what we first started out doing is actually exactly these k-means, quantum k-means, and quantum support vector machines, and then going, moving on to just bread and butter things like regression and principal component analysis, uh, matrix completion, the 
Netflix algorithm. These are, these are methods that involve linear algebra, and a lot of learning techniques just involve, you know, you take gigantic vectors of data and you multiply them you by humongous matrices and you apply some kind of nonlinear transformation, and then you do it again and you try to train the system to work. Well, quantum systems, quantum mechanics is about humongous vectors and gigantic vector spaces and multiplying them by gigantic matrices and then making non, doing nonlinear things like measuring and then seeing what happens. And it turns out that, that in fact, if you do encode data in a quantum mechanical state, you can, you can actually kick serious machine learning ass. So, you, know, you can diagonalize the quantum computer to diagonalize it even with Google's 50 qubit superconducting quantum computer, you could at least in principle diagonalize a 10 to, uh, 10 to the 12th by 10 to the 12th matrix, something which would take Avogadro's number of operations ordinarily, and you're not going to do that classically for quite a while. So I'll stop there. Thanks. Thank you. So you touched on something which I, I actually went back and read because you had mentioned it in your earlier conversation. In the, in the early Macy conference, I think it's an Ashby's discussion on a chess yeah. playing computer. He sort of talks about an algorithmic chess player, but in his formulation, he also includes, besides a sort of a general purpose machine, he also includes a Geiger counter. Right. Which yeah. generally <laughs> randomness. So that, and, and he seems to think somehow that this is really important, but going back to kind of Allison's point, Bigelow makes the uh, Bigelow says, "Well, it would work just as well without." I agree, it's different with that. <laughs> but why don't we just throw that away and it'll all work just as well? Which is, in fact, kind of what happened. Yeah. And that was the, the truth. And, and they were correct that the machine with a true element of randomness was different than a classical machine. It just wasn't different in a way that was helpful. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. I, I, since you mentioned that, you mentioned that, I, I also thought about that some more, about where does randomness play a role? Um, so in living systems, well, neurons are quite noisy, and synapses are noisy because there are small numbers of chemicals. So neural functioning is quite noisy, and the kind of um, digital cellular level information processing is actually, in terms of genetic reproduction, is very precise. So, so E. coli, an E. coli, Nine out of ten of the offspring of an E. coli, as it divides, has have exactly the same DNA as the original E. coli. But of course, we know that it's useful to have stochastic processes. And in fact, if you like, if you stress the E. coli by putting in a little bit of alcohol or something in their petri dish, then they start making many, many more mistakes because you know they're in a bad genetic place and they better run away from there. Um, also, I think that something that, that Allison brought up, and this actually is related to what Neil was saying about you know, state-of-the-art machine learning algorithms. If you actually, and von Neumann, so you know, game theory, right? What is a Nash equilibrium? So for games, a Nash equilibrium, so the Nash's beautiful theorem says, well, if you have a game, then there are actually these equilibria where both players you know, can't change what they're doing uh, without making things worse for themselves. But in order to achieve that, you need a probabilistic strategy. In order to apply the Kakatani fixed point theorem, you need a continuous space of strategies so that you can say, you know, if I change my strategy, it's not going to work. And the best strategies then are these probabilistic strategies. And plenty of times, this is a very good thing to do. 
But it doesn't require true randomness. It mere, I mean, so no, pseudo randomness would be fine. Pseudo randomness works yeah. just fine. Yeah. 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 Although there have been scientific applications where pseudo random numbers random is trouble. Right. Pseudo randomness is, is, is can be problematic. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not. It's. I mean, it's expensive computationally, and by definition, it is not random. <laughs> So, you know, if it, you happen to hit one of those non-randomnesses at the wrong time, it could cause you trouble. Seth, what's your take, speaking of D-Wave? Uh, oh, D-Wave? Yeah. Uh, no, but what's your take on the power of partially uh, coherent quantum computers? So just to translate, yeah. um, quantum computers split into the real true ones are maximally coherent, which means they can be completely entangled. And a lot of the things called quantum computers that have huge numbers of bits are only a little bit coherent, and there's a big debate about how useful they are. So yeah, D-Wave is yeah, D-Wave is an example. It's not a full-blown quantum computer. It's a, it's what's called a quantum annealer. You encode the answer to a hard problem in the ground state of the system. If you can find the lowest energy state, then you've solved the problem, which is a you know classical method for doing this as well. And um, uh, actually, as a result, they're 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 much more immune to noise. The fact that they were rather incoherent. So you start by. Putting it in the lowest state, or it no, goes no, no, no. to the, the lowest state? The lowest works. state is the answer. The lowest state is the answer, right? So the, uh, there's a, a classical form of this called, you know, called uh, simulated annealing, mm -hmm. where you set up the logical constraints of your problem so that the energy is the number of violated logical constraints. And so the ground state, by definition, has the lowest energy because none of the constraints are violated. So it's a solution. And then you cool it down to try to find the answer. But another, another way to say these is really beautiful is um, you put it in the answer, but you change the question. And so if you put it in the answer to an easy problem, you, you then deform it to asking a hard problem. And if you change it slowly enough, it stays in the answer. That's yeah. the Look, So quantum annealing is based on actually you're, what Neil just said. You, you started with a very easy thing to say, like all, all, all the bits, you know, all the spins in your computer should be pointing this way. Mm -hmm. And then you gradually turn on this, this energy function that you would wish to find the lowest energy state. And there's a theorem called the adiabatic theorem mm -hmm. that says if you do this slowly enough, then you'll get there. It was, and this notion of doing computation this way, quantum computation the way it was developed at MIT, but the design for the D-Wave system was developed by my graduate student, Bill Kaminsky, and me in 2002, and we failed to patent it because we did a calculation, and we said, well, after they got, you know, after you've entangled about 50 quantum bits, then no, no matter, even under the absolute most optimistic assumptions, then it's not going to work. You know, the energy will be too high. And then D-Wave spent $100 million building this, from which I conclude that you should always patent things, even if you're absolutely sure that they're not going to work. So. <laughs> but, but, but again, go back to whether you think there's power in partial coherence. Yeah, so, so right. So, so the D-Wave system is partially coherent. It actually does solve hard problems. And in fact, you can show that having a bunch of noise in the middle is helpful for it. It can very well be helpful for it to have noise in the middle. And there are plenty of kinds of computation and including things that were developed by Shannon von Neumann, stochastic uh, computing, um, which were not adopted. They were developed back in the 40s and 50s, but not adopted because of the power of, of, of rapidly increasing power of digital com computers. And you know, once you start actually pressing Moore's law, your systems are going to be noisy. They are going to be stochastic. They're going to be quantum mechanical, but they're going to be semi-quantum mechanical. They're going to be semi-coherent. And I think it would be, this is a wonderful opportunity to develop a theory and practice of mm -hmm. these kinds of computers, which will be the most powerful computers that you could build, where you have to deal with noise and you have to deal with quantum mechanics. Yeah.
On the, uh, on the singularity, the, uh, the singularity ideas that's always seemed interesting to me is not something about time frames. I mean, it's not going to happen in 20 or 30 years. I certainly agree. But uh, I.J. Good's original argument that once you get there, whenever it happens, to the point where uh, machines are at human level capacities in a wide range of, of, uh, of areas, one of the areas where they'll be at uh, human level capacity is uh, creating artificial intelligences. And in the moment they get a little bit beyond human level capacities, and they'll be a little bit beyond human level capacities at creating AI, therefore they'll be able to create AI systems a bit better than those that we can create, therefore they'll be able to create AI systems a bit better than themselves, iterate until super intelligence. Yeah. And that's always struck me as a very, very promising argument. Do you think there's something wrong? Uh, there's something wrong with that? What do you think, Fred? Yeah. <laughs> things can increase and reach and saturate a bound. Yeah. Do something. They can slowly increase. Even if it's only a 50-50 chance. There's nothing inevitable about a singularity, and I think the structure of hard problems, P versus NP, suggests that uh, you know there are going to be problems that are that where progress will be very slow. But why does it have to? Why does, why, does, why does it have to be inevitable to be interesting? I mean, people, this happens a lot in arguments about this. You don't know that's going to happen. Well, even if there's a 10 percent chance it's going to happen, that's well, incredibly interesting. Yeah, right. yeah. There's a no. sort of a flaw in it, in, in the description, which is it sort of suggests that intelligence is this unidimensional thing. Yes. Bingo. Um, <laughs> you, can, you can make it work without that, though. People have actually well, worked so something can be incredibly smart and not have the ability to make an even little bit smart machine. Yeah. But you just... And, and so, so you're, you're assuming like a particular... So that could happen in the, you know... A, some particular dimension of of intelligence could go off in that direction, but it would be a very narrow once you have correlations between capacities, if one if one dimension goes off, then the things that correlate with will tend to go off. And if one of the things which goes off to infinity is the ability to create AI, then at the very least, you it's think we get we get this infinity. offshoot line that also yeah. Ends up well, first of all, let's, can we just do some numbers again? It's not going to go off to infinity, right? <laughs> okay. Computation is a physical process, indeed, as a number of people in this room are fond of claiming that all of all of physical dynamics can be thought of as a computation, as information processing, and there's only a certain amount of information processing you can do. Now, those amounts are large. You know, if you look at if you're willing to kind of like turn things into black hole density and compute using black holes or something like that, but that's unlikely to happen. If you actually say we're going to compute using things that have you know electrons and ordinary materials that are held together by covalent bonds then you're going to have basically ops operating at the level of an electron volt or something like that. And that's where nature is doing it already. You know, so it's, it's not going to become much more... It's curious because, of course, if you think about it, we already do that, right? So we do know that the current intelligence that we have, one of its characteristics is that it creates intelligences mm -hmm. that are actually superior yeah. to it on a regular basis, which in turn create intelligences mm -hmm. that are superior to those intelligences. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to bother us very much, presumably because, you know, we die before we get to great-grandchildren. But that's, <laughs> that, that process is taking well, place. And it, it doesn't strike anyone as being particularly maligned that we're if, creating generations no. that are capable of doing things every, that we're every, not capable of doing. Every PhD right? advisor is trying to create an, you know, yeah, an, well, an intelligence greater than theirs. Disappointed when it goes in the other direction. <laughs> and, and in fact, I mean, literally succeeding, right? You know, that's that's the whole that's the whole plan of yeah. how human intelligence. That's the whole plan of human intelligence works. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting that it strikes us as being hopeful rather than striking us as being. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe I'm going to 
defend Ray. <laughs> <laughs> but I find He's the a problem really are his followers, not him. A lot of what Ray does actually is he projects data. And yeah. if you actually look yeah. at his data, Ray himself yeah, does a really good job. And if you just look yeah. at the data he projects, it's an interesting moment. The data projects in a really interesting yeah, way. So I'd strip out singularity, but do look at Ray's data. <laughs> so the data is so, interesting. So, so, the, so I talk with Ray about this. And actually, so there's been this old projection that uh, no, it's been noted for at least 50 years that human population is growing super exponentially. That is, the rate of growth of yes. people of the population goes is, is of course it's proportional to the number of people there, but there's another positive term that's proportional to the square of the number of people, which is the number of possible interactions you can have. And I mean, my the way I make sense of this is exactly because we do have this funky universal human language, and because our intelligence is a communal intelligence that that our capacity comes from. You know, it's not just how much for reproduce is not just how many people there are, it's how many interactions there are between people. And this gives you this proportion of the square. Now, if you integrate that, then you find that it the population becomes infinite. <laughs> and if you historically, if you extrapolate from historical amounts of population, it becomes infinite at something like 2070. <laughs> you know, it becomes infinite in half a century or something like that. Luckily, it's slowed down recently. <laughs> but I mean, so this is, there is a, so I, I agree with these, there are these kinds of trends towards singularity. So this was pointed out by some Russians like 50 or 60 years ago. Anyway, yeah, but of course get, it can't. People get stupider too. <laughs> I mean, you know, sure. uh, I mean on, the, on the many axes of intelligence, there are many axes right now where people are extinctifying themselves. That's yeah. stupid. Well, I think that's that, like one a of massive the yeah. failure of intelligence. But I think we, we really I think we overemphasize as artificial intelligences get closer and closer to the way the capacity of human beings, they, they, are, they are already exhibiting you know, behaviors which are very human, like, you know, Messing up in weird and unscrutable <laughs> ways that we don't understand. I mean, so I mean, artificial intelligence often leads to real stupidity, and that's one of the signs that it's actually intelligent. <laughs> human beings operate in this self-contradictory fashion, as we heard uh, uh, from you know, the, we don't we don't do things rationally, and by God, we shouldn't do things rationally, as you're arguing, and um, you know, and and computers are going to do that as well. Uh, I don't, and they're already you know. Deep neural networks are already being used to design, you know, do programming, design the next generation yeah. of programming systems. This is not this is not some science fiction. This is happening already. Programming? Well, okay. The, the, maybe this is this distinction that's come up a bunch of times about, you know, what's the difference between a neural net that's been trained <laughs> and a program that's been, you know, written into memory. Does anyone remember back in nineteen? I remember back in nineteen seventy-eight when I was computer hobbyist, 12 years old, there was a program that was released called The Last One. And it was, it was going to be the program that wrote programs. Uh -huh. And then once we've got the program that wrote programs, we're, get, we're never going to need another one. Okay, well, didn't so, that work out? So I mean, as you realize, the main problem is you have to specify what the thing's going to do. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with respect to this question about, you know, ever-increasing intelligence and so on, it would be nice to hear from people what they imagine the definition of intelligence from some sort of physics, mathematics point of view might be, because I think it's all nonsense. <laughs> I think that the, the, the basic point is that, you know, when you, in the end, in the end you'll realize that intelligence is just computation, and you realize that computation happens in lots of kinds of systems. It happens in lots of systems in the universe. It's something where you say, we're going to have this ever-increasing intelligence. This doesn't make any sense. 
computation, the universe is already computing uh, in a very efficient, effective way in all kinds of different places. The only the question is whether this computation is aligned with something that we think of as being, you know, human-like intelligent behavior, and that's a completely different question. Yeah. One that doesn't is quite separate from the, all these, you know, singularities. The cash value is doing things that we care about, right? Like yes. Solving yes. problems, what curing diseases, right. winning wars. Yeah, but right. I think but this is. I think there's a very good point, that Steve. I mean, as, as you know, Stephen and I have both written books claiming the universe is like a giant computer and that we ought to understand everything on top of it. I agree with you about this, right? We we agree about this. And and what's going on is that you know. When we're building computers, and particularly when we're building quantum computers, we, we're actually kind of hacking into the ongoing computation that's going on and having more of that be computation that we'd like to have. And when we build more powerful computers and take use up much more energy, by the way, I think the computers are a big, we really, the real issues are not about use of flops, but about the use of joules and about energy that we're using. Those are the really hard ones. Then you know. Then I think it's going to be okay. Right? As I said, if we can, we pay attention to the computers we're building. If we socialize them, we treat them nicely so they don't, don't become psychotic, and they, they then are part of our human intelligence and not separate from it. In the same way that books are not separate from our intelligence. I want to take your example of your hips and the advertisements for hip replacement, which you labeled as stupid. And let me give an account of why it's intelligent. <laughs> you, I bet, know a lot more people that have had or will have hip replacements or are on the verge of having them than I do. You are a social collector of people who are relevant to hip advertisers. So even though you won't have need one, if you find on an ad, if you happen to notice, well, gee, that's better than what I got. Right. But he think, doesn't want to well, be a node in capitalism's uh, you know, purchase of <laughs> no, customers. No, I'm just saying the capitalist system that's advertising hips to him is not stupid, necessarily. No, and and now the question, then the, where's the intelligence that finds, that discovers that you're a hip replacement <laughs> node? Yeah, okay. And the answer might be, you know, that it's an automated system already that tests a lot of different ways of, fo of, of uh, focusing ads and finds that people that have purchased something, for example, um, should still be advertised for the same thing that even though, you, as in your case, you know you're not gonna need another one, it's not for a long time. Right. Yeah. So and so the system might have discovered that with anybody designing it to discover that, because they try a whole bunch of stuff and some of it gets good feedback in terms of selling hips uh, <laughs> or, or cars or whatever it is. And so it's a combination in this case, the intelligence I think could be accounted for as you're doing some of the work by collecting hip relevant people and talking to them when you learn something about hips. Well, and, 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 the, and the Google advertising system is also a, a learning that, that that works. And no. so it's a combination of human social intelligence and, and the automated system. And it's a good example we'll be talking about of how those are going to merge and, and complement each other. It's, it's, it seems to me it's kind of poetic that we're close to the end and bringing together so many themes in, in terms of a hip replacement. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, it's good for a walk. But it does, it does, it does, it does, it does illustrate opacity. It, it illustrates looking at extreme cases, right? To try to, to tell you new books in case you need it. But it, it also it gets better. 
the reason I was uh, energized to do this project, uh, I went to get a cortisone shot. Nothing major, but it, it was for a pain in my neck, which means they have to do it in a hospital setting. So I make an appointment in the hospital for special surgery, 3 p.m. Get a cup of coffee, and come back, hit my email, New England Burial Society. <laughs> I, I get a second email. Are you New England yet? Crematorium Society. Dot com. Keep your remains intact for a thousand years. Now, I, I knew, I knew this, this is very sophisticated because I knew that something was happening and that something had to be deep learning. And I immediately thought of Demis because I knew this is beyond Larry Page. Uh, why? Because I made the appointment from my farm in Connecticut. And who knew that I don't do the boroughs? So I'm not going to the Brooklyn crematorium. Because <laughs> that's where they are. <laughs> they were in the Bronx or in Brooklyn. Yeah. So it, I skipped those. So, what, but it also, so they knew. Yeah. But it also illustrates what's lacking. You know, So it has opacity. It has looking at extreme cases. What it doesn't have is tactic. You don't have a sense of decency. Ka Catherine Payson. That's what we need is somehow to widen the circle of empathy on both sides. Well, I think and actually, yeah, tactic. You know, tactic which comes from the word to be silent. Right? <laughs> right. It's something we could really use. That, it, that you know, the uh, uh, Herb Simon said, uh, the world that is information rich is by necessity attention poor. Which is kind of, I mean, he said this in 1956 or something like that. And yeah. so that really anticipated our current era. The, what we really need to do with our, is, you know, well, as human beings, is to kind of protect our time and our attention to pay attention to the things that are important, such as other human beings. And hey, the odd, odd, sexy AI. <laughs> <guy. laughs> Catherine Basin asked, why can't we have an AI with humility? Yeah. Why can't we have an AI that? 